dead on nine o'clock. Am I dead on? I mean, it's nine thirty-three. <laughs> oh. Hello and welcome to the Two Five O, the podcast where I'm Jonathan, and with me, as always, is my co-host Douglas. How are you, Douglas? I'm not on the waterfront. I'm uh, under the boardwalk. You know that? Uh, what is it? Uh, seagulls? I think it's a seagulls. I think that's what they were called. Is it? I thought we were under the boardwalk. Or is that a different song? I think that's a different song. There's a lot of boardwalk songs. There's a lot, yeah, a lot of boardwalks. There's lots of. There's, if this is your first time tuning into the 250, <laughs> we've taken a snapshot of IMDb's top 250 <laughs> movies of all time as of January 2020, and we've begun watching them from number 250 through to number one. In this podcast, we discuss our opinions, our thoughts, and our reactions to the movies within. Today's movie, number 170, is On the Waterfront. The Drifters. It was the Drifters who did Under the, bo- uh, under the Boardwalk. I'm a dickhead. After a young Terry Malloy assists in the murder of a man that upset the head of a corrupt dockers union, Malloy is faced with difficult circumstances that push and pull at his sense of morality. On the Waterfront was directed by Aaliyah Kazan and written by Bud Schulberg. Both of them are known for East of Eden and A Streetcar Named Desire. Do you know what A Streetcar Named Desire is, Jonathan? I've heard the name before. Mm, Very classic play, stage play originally, written by one Tennessee Williams. Uh, who was known for... Uh, neither Jonathan nor I have seen this film before. Um, uh, who is known for some of the, like, best plays ever. A Streetcar Named Desire is an insanely good stage play. And the film adaptation of it is not half bad, from what I've heard. Marlon Brando apparently really carries the weight of characters very well. And, yeah, Tennessee Williams has done a whole bunch of fun pieces in his... Uh, what do you call it? Your... Bibliography? Oh, your, your, um. Like discography, but for writers. It's like their. What's a fancy French word? It's like their ouvre or whatever. Yeah, we did, we did work this out, didn't we? Mm, like, mm. like, like probably more than a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds a, a very familiar conversation. Yeah. What did you think about this film, Jonathan? Ah, well, I thought it would be, um. Look, we see the films from the 50s, and I normally think they're going to be depressing and, and maybe a bit slow, but this one was pretty good, Douglas. Yeah. It's a pretty good movie. Fucking... <laughs> it's a pretty engaging movie, Douglas, and they're not yes. always that engaging. Yes. I think the pace cannot be understated here. Mm. You know, like it's the, it really smacks in a lot into that one hour and 48 minute runtime, but it also doesn't overstay its welcome, you know? It's this very nice, neat, short little package. I was thinking this. I don't think we've had a film so far, a short, like a sub to our film that mm. I've gone like, that was too short. I really don't think, I think generally when these films are shorter, I, I think it's normally a good decision. Yeah. Like they're just trimming yeah. fat and stuff. Mm. Maybe. I'm maybe. sure there'll be ones like later on down the track where we're just like, oh, motherfucker, I just want more. <laughs> Certainly won't be that case with the Lord of the Rings, but ah. Uh. <laughs> well, no, it will be Douglas. That is literally what I've been telling you because I've mandated that we're watching the extended cuts. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, director's of cuts. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. That's that's. The well, I one. do want more, Douglas. <laughs> well, well, you're fucking gonna get more than the bloody theatrical cut. That's for mm. sure. Yeah, shit. Just like I think I haven't seen The Godfather. So I don't really have a basis for Marlon Brando in that sense, which is, you know, like, that's his claim to fame as the Godfather. Mm. So this was kind of like my first real proper taste of Marlon Brando and his acting style. And fucking got to tell you, that man is so well aware of the character's motivations and intentions and everything constantly. Throughout the whole fucking film, like, he's given circumstances, like, the objectives and everything, if I'm coming at it from an actor's perspective, it is so clear in his head how Elliot Kazan and Brando have, or I guess uh, Schulberg and Brando have both, or the trio, all worked together to figure out the trajectory for this character and how that kind of paces and works. He is fucking captivating to watch. Mm. Ah, so realistic. Like, so tangible. Like, he's such a... Ah, he just seems like such a person, you know? Such a guy. Yeah. He reminded me of Rocky. And I I think... Ah, I was fucking... I knew we were going to get there. I knew it was only a matter of time. (laughs) 
I think maybe he doesn't have the same arc that Rocky does. I think Rocky no. is mm. very principled, and that's kind of his arc, is that he sticks to his guns, whereas maybe that doesn't happen. Like, if you're getting, we're not in spoilers. But... <laughs> Uh, no, we've talked yeah. about it. he grapples with his morals, Douglas. We talked yes. about that in the, yes. in the summary. Mm-hmm. And that is a feature of the film. I don't think that's much mm. of a spoiler. I will, yeah, I will say the um the way that Sugarberg has written this in such a I think it's also based off of a story. I think I saw that in the opening credits, right? Like it's based yeah, off well, of the- IMDB says uh, it's suggested by articles. Suggested by articles. By that we get Johnson. we get really out out there ones with this where jeez, uh, what the fuck where does it'll that be like, mean? Yeah, yeah, no. Huh. It, it, sometimes it'll be written by. Sometimes it'll be original work written by. And you know, maybe once every ten films, there'll be like a uh, uh, <laughs> uh, thought delivered via Inception. <laughs> Uh, pulled from the mad scrawlings of <laughs> mm, mm, mm. the the gibbering ravings of <laughs> of a uh, uh, yeah drunken man. Okay, so Bud Schulberg is we've got based on an original story by Bud Schulberg and then screenplay by Bud Schulberg. So mm. uh, obviously gotten him on board for it. Yeah, the way that Schulberg has again figured out the trajectory and figured out how to make a very convincing, realistic human kind of stakes like the stakes are like genuinely pretty high like right from the fucking get-go and you see the immediate actions and consequences of everything that happens from like the first fucking like five ten minutes like you get such a very clear like okay this is who this character is this is who this character is this is where they stand this is where the other person stands it's just so fucking like rip roaring, snappy as fuck, mm. and also like shot and lit way ahead of its time. Oh yeah, ah, even from like the opening immediately smacked me with the cinematography yeah. with yeah. some of those angles. Yeah, a lot of stuff that kind of feels like let's say maybe technical, very technical. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not not even not even like technical as in like complex, but technical as in like. Uh, adhering to theory, perhaps. Yeah. There, there's a yep. lot of shots where your eye is drawn by like a line of action. Yeah. The yep. shot where there's a bunch of guys standing out the front of a, I think it might be the bar that the union, the corrupt union, hangs out in. But mm-hmm. it sort of looks down this sequence of guys in a row towards this door, and your focus is kind of on the door and things happen to the door and blah, blah, blah. Mm. shit like that. Mm. The big boat right at the beginning. I think it's the first scene. Yeah. Yep. Which I thought was a matte painting, but might not have been. Can't remember off the top of my head. I watched it a couple of days ago, so I wouldn't be able to confirm nor deny, but... It's a little hard to tell because one would assume that there's probably not heaps of need to shoot a lot of this film, like, on location. Like, you probably could have staged it up, but I don't know. Because this is back in the 50s, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, 1954. So who knows? Who knows what the kind of... MO for filming locations was like back then. Mm. Mm. Not entirely certain. Mm. Uh, Richard Day was responsible for the art direction. Mm. Also worked on Streetcar Named Desire. So, yeah, food for thought. Mm. Very interesting. Like, none, and nonetheless, like, just, yeah, visually so striking. And I always, like, the more black and white films that we get, the more and more I am becoming so conscious of lighting Mm. and, like, how fucking important, especially in black and white films, lighting is because it's, like, literally what highlights the fucking... the subject of the frame or uh, whatever it is that you're trying to, like, get to be the focal point. That is what is white. So it's... Yeah, fuck. Just, like, vividly natural... In in terms of oh yes it makes sense that there is light coming from there but also very creative and very dynamic in the way that it uses light to highlight and focus on things mm. yeah you look at color a completely different way when the the hue is yeah. taken out and it's just the tone you know the yep. value Douglas yes. to use to use mm. parlance. Mm. Use artistic parlance, the value of the tones uh, is, all, is all you have to work with. Because there was that that came up in Joan of Arc, how I think they painted yes, all the castles fuck. like pink oh. to make them. Passion of Joan of Arc, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they do a very good job with it here. 
it must be an absolute nightmare to make sure all that oh. stuff is exposed perfectly. But I guess it's probably a nightmare for color film as well, Douglas. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Mm, I guess um, uh, times times change, but the the way in which things happen, I would assume, doesn't change a lot. Because if something's not broke, why fix it? You know, there's there's different ways of going about doing things, of course, but the actual end result is, you know, I think could often be rather paralleled. Again, like, this film just feels so relevant and modern. Mm. Yeah, fucking bonkers. Fucking written screenwriting as sharp as a goddamn tack. The dialogue is so fucking snappy and quick, especially amongst, like, the Dockers Union gang, like, all of the corrupt fellas. Mm. Like, the way that they all talk and banter with one another is just so, like, it's so 50s, but it's so cool like the way that they talk like it's very yeah of the setting of the period which is i guess to us relatively exotic and different but i don't know yeah i just thought it was really cool and fuck me father barry holy shit carl malden he gets some amazing bits of script holy Mm. shit Mm. he gets some amazing little like little monologue moments and speechy moments and just like dialogue stuff yeah, I was really impressed by him. Yeah, they don't give the the the, the dock workers lots of kind of because because I think the characters are very interesting. I yes. was immediately yeah. like when you Invested. first get int- mm. you get introduced to the to the union guys and there's so many like just wide range of interesting dudes. Mm. The dock workers comparatively are all fairly quiet and and like don't you know not very bombastic or anything. But I think that's mm. sort of the point too. Yeah, they're yeah. a bit downtrodden, Douglas. They're a bit brow beaten but they still have a bit of kind of fun in there there's a great shot from pretty early on where they're all kind of trading jackets where they're like oh i think you you know you should have this jacket and the guy's like oh he's like your your jacket has so many holes in it. oh thank you very much you know he takes his jacket off and he goes hey <laughs> his holy jacket that he just wrote hey you need a new jacket don't you and gives it to, another <laughs> gives guy. It to that guy <laughs> yeah so there's a bit there's a bit going on in there and it's mm. it's more about sort of the, the relationship, I guess, the the solidarity of the workers that is kind of the bit there uh, as compared to the yeah more out there characters of all the union guys as well as the the priest, the father. Yep. And our love interest character as well. Father Baza. Um yes. No. <laughs> well Yeah, no 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 no, no. Maybe. <laughs> Be a very different film. Uh, yes, Edie Doyle, who is played by Eva Marie Saint. Mm. Are we is she familiar? Have we, have we had her anything else? We haven't had her prior, but we will be having her in future, I do believe. Oh. Yes, Ooh. yes, we most definitely will. Ooh. In a Hitchcock, Hitchcock film. Uh-huh. She was, I mean, um, I actually don't feel one way or another about her. I think a lot of characters... Yeah. Like, the mm. love interest character in all these films is basically written exactly the same. Yeah. Did feel a little bit kind of like damsel in distress mm. and just I, I would have liked her to have more to do mm. rather than it feels like she does a lot of wallowing and crying and things. Would have been nice for her to have a little bit more forward momentum, I think, just as a cat. Uh, Mrs. Smith Goes to Washington has the, the female love interest character mm. in that film has amazing forward momentum. You really get behind her and you're like, fuck yeah, you're putting in the work, lady. Let's go. Mm. I thought you were about to talk shit on her and I was like, no. no fuck no. Uh, if anything, I'm comparing and contrasting the two and going that this is a weaker example of a female <laughs> protagonist love interest in comparison to Mrs. Smith Goes to Washington. Just in, yeah, again, in that I just feel like she doesn't have enough to do in mm. the piece other than support Terry. Yeah. Which... Again, Marlon Brando gives a fantastic performance, but I don't think Marlon's performance needs support from Eva because, no. like, Eva seems already like a fantastic actress. I, it would it would have been cool if she'd just been her own character on her yeah. own, yeah. kind of deal. Mm. Yeah, you have a pretty early on, like, kind of romance building kind of scene mm. with mm. her making conversation, or I guess. Terry making conversation with her. Yeah, very, very reminiscent of Rocky. Very Rocky kind of exploration. Yeah. yeah. But the kind of bit with Rocky is that he is sort of a bit awkward and weird. Punch drunk and yeah. 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 But, you know, I, I 
yeah no it's 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 not my favorite bit it gets better pretty quickly thankfully yes but yeah right at the start they develop the two very naturally mm. um, which i think is good yeah uh just i wanted to call attention to two things about the cast mm. number one <laughs> there's a gentleman in the in this film called lee ferrickson and oh. when that came up i fucking i just i was like it's lee ferrickson day <laughs> oh my fucking i was like goodness. holy shit he's an actually he's a real person he existed on this earth i thought that was a bit the whole time if anyone doesn't know what i'm talking about it's an old spongebob episode where mm. uh spongebob gets out of bed and he goes it's lee ferrickson day and then he's got like a viking helmet on or something it's a funny bit go look it up <laughs> yeah, that just fucking gave me whiplash. I was like, I can't believe that that's real. And then John F. Hamilton, uh, he plays Pop. Does he or does he not look like Willem Dafoe? Uh, he's Dafoe adjacent. He gave me so much, like, Dafoe energy in his performance. I don't know. Mm. Might, might just be me. Might just be me. But I just, like, I was watching him in scenes and stuff, and I was like, fuck it, this is... That's one Defoe-looking boy. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. You feeling it? Yeah, I am sort of feeling it. He's like a slightly more nourished Willem yes. Defoe. Yes, mm. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Had a couple of heartier meals. Uh, a little plumper Defoe. in the cheeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Not, <laughs> he... not uh, shaming Willem Defoe for being skinny or anything. That's just uh, it's a little no. bit. Um... No, we're shaming him for being gaunt. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting, I was looking for the word gaunt. I was like, "There's a, there's a really uh, gaunt." The the vowels in gaunt make that a gaunt. It's a really nice word. Could you could you see another Green Goblin as anyone but Willem Dafoe? Oh. He is the did, perfect. Oh, did you see the uh, the trailer that came out today? I didn't. The uh, Spider Man No Way Home. Did you see that? Uh, Disney's been pushing hashtag Doc Ock and people oh. have been uh, have changed it to hashtag Do Cock Do Cock yeah really proud of them, really proud of uh, uh, yeah good on your Twitter fighting mm. fighting the, fighting the good fight, fight. Yep. fighting the Absolutely. good fight 100% mm-hmm. yep <laughs> oh uh, last little takeaway I guess before we swing on over into uh, the spoiler zone spoiler town Watching the opening credits, I love how old films, they always get the credits out and fucking out of the mm. way at the beginning of the film. <laughs> so then, like, I could just imagine in the theatre, you're like, oh, it's the end of the film. You fucking pack up and walk off. Like, you don't, mm. like, you don't have to sit around. It's great. I've talked about that before, I bet. Leonard Bernstein came up as the composer. And this is going to make every musical theatre head who's listening to this want to fucking top themselves. But I was sitting there going, hmm, Leonard Bernstein, why the hell is, why is that so familiar? And then... I was listening to the soundtrack and there was, you know, a lot of like very stark kind of like, you know, like the music drops off very quickly. Like it has like a and then it like drops off. And I was like, wow, that's re- that's really reminiscent of like a musical or something. I just I don't know what the what it could be. And I was like rattling my head. I was like trying to think of like older musicals. And then I fucking I finally gave up and I looked at my phone and I literally slammed my phone into the couch reel back and just fucking screamed. I was just like, <laughs> of course it's fucking West Side Story. Like, it's... What the fuck else was it going to be? It's so... Have you listened to the West Side Story soundtrack at all, John? No. Nah. You definitely should. It's one of the... In terms of older musicals, 60s musicals, West Side Story definitely has one of the better soundtracks mm. um and that is fucking part and parcel to leonard bernstein's fucking amazing compositions and i love how leonard's stuff works here on uh, on the waterfront like it brings a lot of like really fun tension and uh i guess more weight to a lot of the film mm. and it's just yeah I love his I love his strings, man. How he works a string section and the percussion. Ah, fuck. So good. Not to mention Douglas that extremely jazzy opening. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Very jazzy. Yeah, fucking he for it. <laughs> Sitting back, leaning back on my couch with a cigar and a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that kind of jazz. It's it's very oh. upbeat. It's um well, sitting, still... sitting up. No, you don't oh. lie you don't sit back with a with a whiskey <laughs> at at a Fast paced jazz, you at a goose. at a fucking foxtrot or a Charleston. What the please, fuck? Are please, please tap about? your foot kindly, Douglas. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that just gave me huge whiplash. Uh, yeah. West Side Story, Leonard Bernstein. Well, mm-hmm. 
Douglas. Yeah. Well, would you recommend this film? Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely one of the, one probably one of my favourite 1950s pieces we've had on the 250 so far. Or I guess prior 1960s. Like mm. this is, yeah, this is a staple for me. Like it's, what it does right, it does so fucking well. Marlon Brando's Ooh. characterization is impeccable. Do you have some complaints, some, Douglas? Oh, yeah, just minor gripes on, like, uh, as we talked about, like, Eva Marie Saint's character. Oh, yeah, okay. Just, yeah, didn't feel super red hot on her. But, like, it's, again, that's such a, I wouldn't say a minor gripe, obviously. Like, you know, it's, I, I hate to say fucking, it's, a, it's what the times were, like, you know. But, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Um, yeah, no, I recommend it as well. It was, it's, it's very approachable. It's very recommendable for yeah. a, yeah. for a film of this age. A lot of the time you can't really. They can be a little bit impenetrable. Hmm. That hard to recommend for. Because the age is normally very years. prominent, you know, like. Well, it's 70 either... years ago, like the way that the, that films were produced back then is completely fucking Com- different. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Well, this yeah, this is a good start, this is especially for people who might want to jump into older cinema. Yeah, older cinema. Absolutely. This is an excellent one. Most definitely. Uh, we're gonna have we're gonna swap over to the spoiler zone. Everything past this point will be a spoiler. Douglas, do you have a fun little music sting that we want to use? I'm just gonna use the regular air horn. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I'm the fucking compose. A sting, a Leonard Bernstein-esque sting for this fucking episode. No, John, I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> uh, well, it is good that you recognize that because I was going to ask you. No, um, uh, <laughs> w- um, I don't know if I sent this to you way back when, but someone mm. was talking about Tenet. Ah. And Tenet, the cinema, cinema, cinema. Cinema release. Uh-huh. Cinematic release? Yes. Is that the right word? Theatrical release. Thank you. The theatrical release, Douglas. I knew the word was wrong, and that's why I stumbled <laughs> on it so much, because I was like, that's not the right category. <laughs> the theatrical release of Tenet. There were lots of complaints yep. about the sound mixing. The mixing, yes. And I, I also was, had those complaints when I watched it. I was watching uh, some conversation about the way that other filmmakers will purposely block out audio in order to make you focus on the visual the visuals more yep. or for other for other artistic intents yeah and i think tenet the two big examples i know of is the bit where robert patterson is going through the art storage like facility yeah yep yep the dude talking like fades out yeah yeah, yeah. and the second one is when they're on the catamaran and I think the cameraman one still doesn't make heaps of sense to me. When I saw the these versions, because I didn't watch it theatrically, the shot in the the art area, Art Town USA, made a lot of sense because you kind of get to focus on the visuals a lot more, whereas mm. it felt like on the cameraman that was sort of important stuff to be communicated. So that, and I think that's exactly the same here. And I can kind of, sorry, I was watching a video that was comparing that to other films that have done this and they use on the waterfront as an example. That's the connection. Yeah. The um just, just the, ran I'm off assuming, with that. Yeah, the sequence where Terry is finally spilling the beans to Edie about um how he knows about how her brother died and everything, right? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Which is yeah, I think it works perfectly. It works well really well in the context of this film. Like it's fantastic. Getting to watch like her face and her reaction and because we know what the words are. Like mm, exactly. regardless of what Marlon's character says, we know what the intention is there, like what it is he's going to say. So, yeah, very smart decision to just go like, you know what, like the words are completely fucking superfluous here and the image is far more important. Um, hmm. Which, yeah, fucking smart filmmaking. Yeah. Very smart filmmaking. Yeah. I, yep. I, so, yeah, that, I think knowing that, knowing that kind of stylistic choice, had a huge effect on the way that I then perceived it, which was mm. interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think it totally works. I think it's quite clever. And it's just on its own is something quite interesting you don't see very often. And that in and of itself just makes it kind of fun and interesting. Yeah. So yep. it's kind of a twofer. It's kind of fun and exciting anyway. Yep. But 
it's also quite well, you know, if I hadn't had that, well, now that I do have that rather background to it, it, it was a little bit of a thoughty, thinky, thinky kind of, it was cool. It was cool. It's a, uh, yeah, creative decision. It's been yeah. jammed in the back of my fucking skull because I was, I was thinking about it so hard, but it's interesting. I, it, I think that, yeah, from what I saw with the Tenet one, the second one at least didn't make much sense to me, but it is- Yes, a, yeah, I agree. It, I, feel like, I feel like I should have seen it more by now. It feels like it should be a trope. I guess people seem to react pretty negatively to it yeah, a lot of the time, yeah. so- but like Nolan's Nolan, so he's always going to do it, mm. I think. He's, he's working on a biopic, I think, next. Oh. oh, yeah, yeah. It's got like a whole bunch of like interesting people attached to it in the cast, mm. so- yeah, that'll be interesting to keep tabs on and see where that heads. And I bet he'll do the exact same fucking sound mixing shenanigans in that as well. So <laughs> good. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's I just yeah. It's it's good to have interesting, confident decisions in the post production setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bringing it to production, watching this, I felt like a real sense of understanding, which I I wasn't expecting to find masculinity in like the 1950s and like what it meant to yeah like not rat to the cops and like you know don't say anything and you know every man for himself that kind of mindset Mm. and then i just found terry malloy such a very interesting exploration of that like am i still considered a man if i uh you know tweet like a canary or whatever (laughs) and do what I perceive to be right. Yeah, did you have like any, did you catalogue that as much as I did? Or I just, yeah, kind of Yeah, I read it less as maybe a, although I think there's probably some flavour of that sort of intentionally in there, I read it less as a commentary and more just like the position that these people have been put in, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like the work that they have to do. Yeah, they've got to to work because they've got to feed themselves, they need money to feed themselves. And if they rat out on people then they don't get work so they you know they're kind of fucked <laughs> there's a situation get into a corner yeah exactly so you know on one hand that sort of made sense but yeah i think that's i think that's a good takeaway i think it's a very interesting takeaway mm. and i think definitely own that I think especially cool. towards the end like i mm. got a real sense of like yeah like the the other workers who were in that union all questioning terry malloy's masculinity and like Mm. Whether once he had, you know, spilled the beans and gone in court and testified and everything like that. Like, he had the opportunity to wait at the bar, wait for Johnny Friendly to come in, fucking pop him, pop all of his associates and everything, just kill them all in blood Mm. and call it a day, which I bet a lot of the other workers would have been like, yeah, that's fucking, he's a burly boy, is that Terry? But then because he, yeah, he took the other route. It felt like they were kind of, yeah, questioning his uh, masculinity. And I just thought that that was a very interesting kind of fucking hot take for like the 1950s. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. That's just how I perceived it. No, no. I think, I think you're somewhat onto something. Um, mm. Mm. It's cool that um, you saw that and I didn't. It's, it's, uh, well, that's why, why we fucking do people. the podcast, John. That's why it's two people in those body podcast <laughs> God forbid it's just one of us batting on into You could do that. I couldn't. The ether. Oh, mm, could I? I've said it already, the, the father is superb. Carl Malden, he's, yeah, amazing actor. I think it was a pretty good choice to sort of keep guns out of it. Yeah. I realised mm. until maybe, yeah, probably an hour and 20 minutes in, or maybe one minute is an hour and 10 minutes in, or something like, there hasn't been a gun. And these guys are all very, like, you know, they're not gangsters per se, but they're very gangstery types. You know, when they want to beat up on someone, they, you know, hit them with a baseball bat or... Start steel pipe out. or yeah yeah so when a gun does come out the there's weight the kind of, there the yeah. gravity of it is so much mm, more which i thought true. was a really cool choice mm. and then that gun remains in the film and is sort of plays into a lot of the kind of the morality you know terry's now got this opportunity to sort of just kill the union guy and mm. have it all be over and they don't do that because It'd ruin the case, you know. It can't he brings himself to a crossroads, yeah. Mm. And then you've got mm. the father trying to calm down a fucking hot-headed ex-fighter <laughs> um, to try and get him to see reason. Like, mm. it's, yeah, it's really palpable stuff. Mm. That does remind me, it sort of loops back into the, the same sequence of scenes where he's, I think he 
broke the glass. Yeah, he broke the glass and he's got like the mm. blood on his hands. Yeah, and yeah. I was just amazed at how well they made that show up. The continuity of that. Yeah, and in black and white. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the continuity as well. But the, um, yeah, it, it, I think it's very dark and very shiny. And it makes me wonder whether they used like oil or something, something completely different. To give it to, that shine. To yeah. really, yeah. Um, and yeah, the continuity, Douglas. We've mm. got to love some good continuity. Yeah. Absolutely. Fucking, that's, I think I would enjoy seeing whether Alaya Kazan has any stage experience, like stage mm. directing experience, mm. because normally from what I've perceived is that people who are paying very keen attention to continuity tend to be people who have worked on stage before because uh-huh. fucking continuity is so goddamn important in a stage setting, right? Because the audience, nine times out of ten, there's a huge fucking wall in from stage to audience, right? Mm. And also nine times out of ten, there's some very, like, heightened circumstances that are happening on the stage. So you've got to get the audience to suspend a little bit of uh, disbelief and get them on board with what the hell is actually going on stage. But most audience members have that little cynic in the back of their head that's, like, looking for something that's wrong. Uh-huh. And when they find something that's wrong, they're like, oh, you fuckhead, you... There's the, the <laughs> paint... That painting wasn't there before, you cockhead. It's it's just... Yeah, it seemed like one of those attentions where I was like, yeah, that feels like a... That feels like a stage director kind of a move. <laughs> <laughs> Which, good on you, Kazan. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. I, I, I wonder if there are more examples of that. But... Mm, mm, throughout the film, mm, perhaps. Mm. If I have a complaint, it's yes. the weird rapey kiss bit. Yeah, fucking, what is it with, like, ugh, it's, same fucking thing happened in Rocky, didn't it? Rocky had, like, a pretty weird, like, kind of, um, she was yeah. saying no, and then he kissed her. Oh, I think I might have. That's a bummer. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very yucky, because uh, it's pretty extended, her saying, mm. no, I don't want to see you, I don't want to talk to you, please go away. Yeah. And then, like, they kiss. It's very much the, the, the narrative. It's like the women just need a, you know, the women yeah, want a strong man just, to, to... To just to, fucking grab her and give secret, her a good They old, secretly want to, but... Yeah, but, a good well, old smooching. Yeah, yeah. And then mm. she'll, she'll calm on down. Yeah. It's... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yucky. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it was all around. That's kind of the shame with, I like, sort of like Edie as a character, and I yeah. don't think she really benefited much from... I think her place in the story is very important because it gives a very fun conflict of interest between mm. Terry and Edie because Terry doesn't want to get fucking caught out for being in the thing or otherwise Johnny Friendly and his fucking gang are going to come beat the shit out of him. Mm. And... He's also starting to develop feelings for this woman who he assisted in killing her brother. Uh, again, that feels like a very tangible, realistic, Tennessee Williams-esque kind of moral questioning. And like mm. that, yeah, that push and pull, that really fun push and pull because there's, ah, it's executed so beautifully in the, in the framework of the movie because they have that bit where they go out and have beers and then like... She starts to like get up to go oh, yeah. off, but then they all get like they get kind of like convoluted in the wedding and like start dancing around and like you know having a good time and like really talking and communicating with each other. But then a guy comes over and he's like, "Hey, fucking Johnny Friendly needs to come and talk to you." And it's like it's such a like whoom, whiplash back to what Terry's life is at that point. And mm. then Terry trying to fucking play it off all cool, like, oh, it was nothing. It, was, it definitely wasn't about your dead brother. It definitely, definitely wasn't about that. Don't, don't worry about it. That is so fun to watch. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah. That is the really nice thing about that. Conflicting interest. Very entertaining to watch because you see two characters who are like on the same wavelength, but there's unresolved problems and circumstances that stop them from actually like properly getting together and an audience doesn't like it when things go right there needs to be some form of problem or without conflict douglas you don't have a film exactly there needs to be some form of obstacle or something to overcome so it's yeah but the way that this 
problem or obstacle has been developed is yeah, it's so real. Hmm. Yeah. Ugh. So good. Yeah. Well, Douglas. Yeah. I've had a good chatter on about on the waterfront. Oh, actually, no. I got one more artsy fuckhead thing to say. <laughs> Did you think that they talk a lot of like? There's the whole thing with the pigeons. Like he loves his pigeons, mm. but then he talks about the hawks, right? And you know, like how like a hawk can just come in and like fucking grab a pigeon and then like get the fuck out. Mm. Do you think Bud Schulberg had used pigeons and hawks as a form of symbolism for? Terry being a pigeon and Johnny Friendly being the hawk? Uh, yeah, surely. Surely. You reckon? Yeah, I don't know. That made sense in my head. But I was like, is that too, like, artsy of me to think no, of that? No, it's like- not. It's not. That's, I, think that, I think that sort of makes sense. Am it's I kind of an, un- it's an underdog thing, Douglas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, people don't pay attention to pigeons, but Terry pays attention to pigeons. And then, oh, Terry. Uh, we never actually see a hawk, but, like, the way that, Terry describes hawks as like, you know, it's very cutthroat and very um, uh, visceral. Mm. So, yeah, when that came up, I think I think I talk about hawks like a couple of times, but the second time it came up, I was like, wait, there's a thing. <laughs> Sensing a thing. And I was like, wow, that's fucking, uh, I don't know if I'm reaching, but okay, good to, good to know. I'm not reaching. <laughs> no, that's not a reach, I don't think at cool. all. Cool, sick. All right, that's all my notes now. <laughs> that's all Douglas's notes here. Douglas has finished. Well, all right, yep. Book close Douglas. that fuck off. Yep. Close that off. Could we have uh, some post, post-film discussion trivia? Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Douglas is looking for the trivia right now. This is something we do every episode. Every episode, we look for some trivia. Douglas gets some trivia, and we listen to trivia about the film. Yeah, we- To expand uh, on our understanding, Douglas. I'm, I'm going to- I'm reading this trivia for the first time as well. So here we go. It's good times. Someone had a big day. Yeah, yeah, you betcha. Did not uh, have prep time. <laughs> in his biography of Elia Kazan, Richard Schickel describes how Kazan used a ploy to entice Marlon Brando to do the movie. A ploy. He had Carl Molden direct a scene from the film with an up-and-coming fellow actor from the actor's studio playing the Terry Malloy Ray role. They figured the competitive Brando would not be eager to see such a major role handed to some new screen heartthrob. <laughs> the ploy worked, especially since the competition had come in the form of a guy named Paul Newman. Oh my goodness. Fucking imagine Paul Newman acting alongside Marlon Brando in like a screen test. Holy mm. shit. I love the idea that they're like, they're like, we need some guy to, to really make him jealous. I'm just to, like yeah, some, yeah. some up and comer, some, some dude, just some random rando. guy. Oh, yeah. just, 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 uh, Paul Newman. We'll just, just uh, this guy, you know, he doesn't have very much experience. Paul Newman. He's not that out. good yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, fuck it. By that point, like he genuinely wasn't like mm. by the 1950s, like 1954, he only had a couple of TV series under his belt. He didn't have any like feature yeah. films. Yeah. So. Yeah, like his his real breakaway was Cool Hand Luke. Mm. Cool Hand Luke. We did an episode of that for the two five zero. If you're more interested sure. about Paul Newman, Cool Hand Luke, go listen to the episode. It's good times. As part of his contract, Marlon Brando only worked until four o'clock every day, and then would leave to go see his analyst. Brando's mother had recently died, and the conflicted young actor was in therapy to resolve his issues with his parents. Interestingly, for the film's classic scene between Rod Steiger and Brando in the back of the cab. All of Steiger's close-ups were filmed after Brando had left for the day, so Brando's <laughs> lines were read by one of the crew members. For many years, Steiger, who had actually stayed during Brando's close-ups to help him put in a better performance, remained very bitter that Brando didn't return the favour and often mentioned it in interviews. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's bullshit. That's a fucking, yeah, like, that's a genuine, like, to this day, that is something that you just do as an actor. Like, mm. you always feed the other actor if, if it's not your close-up fuck it to hell you feed the actor to mm. like to help them find the authenticity of the of the performance so yeah fucking brando come on get your act together come on pull it together mister in his autobiography marlon brando revealed his initial thoughts about his performance quote on the day, Elia Kazan showed me the completed picture. I was so depressed by my performance, I got up and left the screening room. I thought oh. I was a huge failure and walked out without a word to him. I was simply embarrassed for myself, end quote. Oh Fuck goodness. it, if you were embarrassed for that performance, Brando, man, you 
fucking perfectionist. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's so weird. God. Like, yeah, it, it, to me, it's so... Yeah, ah, oh, fuck, I've already batted on it enough about Brando, but yeah, whatever. That's very funny to me. What a weird cat. Yeah, yeah. Funky dude. The taxi cab scene between Terry and Charlie, one of the most famous scenes in the cinema, was not improvised, as Marlon Brando claimed in his autobiography. When Brando did initially improvise during the shooting of the scene and Rod Steiger followed his lead, Elijah Kazan yelled, quote, Stop the shit, buddy, to Brando <laughs> using his nickname. The two actors stuck to Bud Schulberg's script after that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, Kazan, not a big fan of uh, improv. Oh. Uh, fuck. Yeah. He likes the way that he's written it and he uh yep. boy, it's, it's been written. Script. Yeah. Mm. Yep. You know, as I think it's worked in the case of this film. So, yeah. Uh the scene where Eva Marie Saint drops her glove and Marlon Brando picks it up and puts it on his hand was unplanned. Saint dropped her glove accidentally in rehearsal and Brando improvised the rest. Eliagazan loved the new business and asked him to repeat it for the take. It gives me very rocky energy. That yeah, as well. Yeah, that was the other totally. big one where he just like starts fiddling with shit. I'm like, that's mm, very so that's rocky. Very rocky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is good business. It's. I'm glad that Kazan kept it around. We love. We mm. love business. Mm. Grace Kelly turned down the role of Edie Doyle, deciding to make Rear Window in uh, 1954 instead. Rear Window did well though, didn't it? Rear Window was um yeah Alfred Hitchcock um and yeah. Uh, Rear Window did so well, in fact, that it's in, like, the top 50, I'm pretty sure. So, oh, geez, Louise, okay. Uh, yeah. So probably yeah, the better choice. Probably made, yeah, probably made a good call there, Grace Kelly. Good on you. <laughs> the leading characters were based on real people. Terry Malloy was based on longshoreman and whistleblower Anthony Vincenzo. Father Barry was based on waterfront priest John M. Corridan. And Johnny Friendly was based on mobster Albert Anastasia. Oh, oh what, what a, a name. mobster name. Yeah. Oy, oy, oy. Fucking superb. Thing of beauty. I love this. This is the most film thing I've ever heard. Sam Spiegel forgot to pay for rear projection equipment, which is the reason why the cab where Marlon and Brando and Rob Steiger play out the film's most famous scene has blinds. Because <laughs> you know how, like, in 1950s movies, like, they have, like, yeah. the, the pre-recorded, like, car yeah. footage like going on in the windows out like fuck he forgot to pay to get that equipment oh, that shit kills me <laughs> oh my fucking goodness oh god wow uh sam spiegel sent the script to marlon brando and it came back with a refusal spiegel however had inserted small pieces of paper between the pages which were still in place when the script was returned to him indicating that it hadn't been read fucking smart boy while spiegel continued to work on brando Frank Sinatra agreed to take on the role. Oh. Fucking imagine Frank Sinatra playing that character. That'd Sorry, did Frank Sinatra do Frank... acting? Yeah, can Frank act? I didn't think I Frankie mean, Boy had I an mean, acting bone in him. Yeah, good on him. Fucking by all means, like if he can do it, fucking send it. Oh, it looks like he did a bunch of like TV yeah, series and 68 stuff. credits, Douglas. Yeah, fuck. Not too bad actually. Wow. Wow, good on you, Frankie. He would have been—he would have been in prime time as well around 1954. Mm. He was in the Colgate Comedy Hour. Whoa! Comedy, comedy, comedy. So his real years active was like Four. 41 to 1970, and they had like yeah. a couple of small things after that. Yeah, like TV series and stuff like that. Yeah, mm. yeah. Man, Frankie, fucking interesting life that man. Uh, the Terry Malloy line, quote, you don't understand, I could have had class, I could have been a contender, I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am, end quote, was selected at number three on the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Quotes list. We should have used that one, hey? It's pretty good writing. Yeah, yeah. I think in, in the context of the film itself and when it's spoken and everything, it's got a fair bit of good, like, weight and gravitas to it. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Some good feel to it, Douglas. Mm. Arthur Miller was approached by Elijah Kazan to write the screenplay and did so, but later pulled it when the FBI and studio bosses required him to make the gangsters communists. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, what? Name one good thing the FBI has done. Oh, wait. <laughs> Holy f- What a bunch of fucking losers. God, right? Fire out. Um, Arthur Miller uh, is mainly renowned for writing The Crucible, um, which mm. is another. Uh, fantastic 
stage play. Well, I guess that's what I mainly know him for. Eva Marie Saint's character was supposed to be 19 in the film. The actress was 30 years old at the time of the film's release. That makes it even more yucky. Because <laughs> uh. what, Terry is supposed to be like, late 20s oh for fuck's sake god <laughs> christ alive the, the more the more we find the more poorly oh. she's written no oh, i wish that we just hadn't dug into the trivia Douglas. <laughs> this is the only film that wasn't a musical for which leonard bernstein wrote the incidental music mm, yeah he's he's down for a lot of musicals yeah a lot, absolutely a lot of musicals. and just a lot of like general like symphonies yeah 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 mm. uh symphony work yeah in the scene where Terry and Edie are talking on the rooftop of Terry's apartment building after he finds the pigeons killed, Terry looks off to his left with the next shot showing what he's looking at of the Hudson River and Manhattan in the distance. In that shot, a large ocean liner is seen moving down the Hudson on its way out to sea. The ship is the then-new Italian liner Andrea Doria, a little more than two years before it was sunk in a collision with the Swedish liner Stockholm off Martha's Vineyard. Ah, oh, she is. <laughs> so, fucking, yeah, but... Captured in time. Mm. The Andrea Doria. Very interesting. Bud Schulberg later published a novel titled Waterfront that was much closer to his original screenplay than the version released to theatres. Among several differences is that Terry Malloy is brutally murdered. <laughs> oh. A little bit more of a fucking bummer of an ending. Hmm. Yeah, that's just the end of the film from that? Jeez. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I really liked how the screenplay like wound up in terms of like mm. how it ended. Um, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's like maybe a little bit um predictable, I guess you could say. But yeah, yeah, you know, I, I was hoping that he would like collapse, or you know, as he's like hazily walking towards like going to work, mm. and then like I don't know what happens from there. But <laughs> mm. also worth noting, this film did a fucking sweep of the 1955 Academy Awards, winning. Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, which went to Eva Marie Saint, which is fucking, I guess, must have been a bit of a slim pickings for the black category. <laughs> uh, best Director, <laughs> that's not a slight at Eva Marie Saint, by the way. That's a slight at the writing that she got. Yes, I think she, she acted well for this. For the stuff that she got, absolutely. For what she was yeah, given, yeah. 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 Best Director went to Eli Kazan. Best Writing Story and Screenplay went to Bud Schulberg. Best Cinematography. At, this is at the time where it was still the bridge between black and white and colour. So they mm. had separate categories for oh, yeah. um, black and white and colour, which is really fun. This film got Best Cinematography for Black and White uh, by Boris Kaufman. And mm. it also got Best Art Direction and Best Set Direction, uh, Black and White, for Richard Day. And Best Film Editing by Gene Milford. Mm. The only categories that it flopped in were Best Actor in a Supporting Role. There were three nominations for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Uh, Lee J. Cobb, Carl Malden, and Rod Steiger. Um, fucking uh, looking at it, it's a... Fuck me, it's a tough category for that year. They had... Um, Edmund O'Brien, Carl Molden, Rob Steiger, Lee J. Cobb, and then Tom Tully. Um, Tom Tully and Edmund O'Brien are fucking, yeah, they're heavyweights in the 50s acting field as well. So, yeah, fuck. Tough. But uh, allegedly, Edmund O'Brien did a very good performance in The Barefoot Contessa. So, Barefoot Contessa. Yeah, that was uh, what he received his Academy Award for. And then it also somehow fucking whiffed on best music, scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture, Leonard Bernstein. Huh? You get Leonard Bernstein, people, and fucking you're giving it away to the fucking High and the Mighty by Dimitri Tiomkin. Who the fuck? I don't know. I is that a good? My... Is that a good soundtrack, Douglas? Do you know? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't listened to it. I can't. <laughs> I can't make commentary on it. But why didn't Leonard get it? Ah. <laughs> 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 uh... It's, yeah, I don't know. Damn, that still I bet did it's fine. very well. I bet it's fine. <laughs> I guess. Um, he did uh, the soundtrack for Dial M for Murder, which oh. he, I know is coming up on the um, uh, 250. So, How do you know that, Douglas? Because it's right next to V for Vendetta. <laughs> oh. Well, there's lots of letter-based <laughs> it goes, ones. Yeah, yeah, it goes Dial M for Murder, and then it goes V for Vendetta. It's great. <laughs> I, lo I love how the, the snapshot that we took was at the perfect moment in time where V for Vendetta and Dial M for Murder were like, bang, next to each other. <laughs> Good times. Um, yeah, that's all I really got. 
Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I was planning those. Thank you for the mm. trivia. Oh, my pleasure. Good job. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode of the 250 Podcast, uh, every week we uh, do an episode of the 250 Podcast. <laughs> and that is when you can get an episode. Uh, we do episodes weekly every <laughs> Tuesday midnight, Australian Eastern Standard Time, which comes out to Monday afternoons in Europe and Monday mornings in America. Douglas, where can people go for uh, 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 podcast-related info? If you want a hub for all things 250, open up your favorite web browser and type in www.250.com. Um, there you'll find our email. Uh, if you want to send us a fucking fliggity message, which is mail at 250.com. That's T-W-O-F-I-V-E-O-H.com. As well as a link to our Instagram, which is 250pod. And a repository for the podcast itself, which is hosted by Wooshka. But you can also get links from that to both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Mm. Douglas and I both use Letterboxd, which is a film tracking and reviewing website. My account is Upa, that is U-U-U-P-A-H, and Douglas. My account is I-E-N-Z-O-K-N-I-G-H-T. That's Ienzo Knight. You can whack in either Upa, Ienzo Knight, or 250 into the Letterboxd search engine and you will find us. On Letterboxd, we write written reviews of everything that we've watched here for the 250, as well as anything else that we've watched in our spare time. In my spare time, I watched quite a bit, actually. Oh, sweet. Uh, no Time to Die, the latest oh, yes. James Bond. Fuck me, it's good. Uh, I really it like it. Okay. I, I get why a lot of people probably aren't going to like it. I'll be mm. interested to see what your take is on it, but mm. it's very fitting for the end of Craig's era as Bond. Is this um, the actual last Craig film? Yeah, this is it. This is Craig's the final actual, hurrah. The yes. actual last yes, one. Yes, I know, because we have <laughs> we have had that He's before. He's been saying it's the last one for about the last four he's films. fucking, like, whenever someone asks Craig about, like, what he thinks about doing another Bond, he's always like, oh, I fucking hate it. I'm never doing another Bond film. And then he comes back and does another one. So. And they're like, okay, this time we'll give you $7 million. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> fucking, you think? Daniel Craig's getting seven million for playing fucking Bond, probably like five times that, if not. I like was, I 10. was like, yeah, I was like, I don't know if that's high or low. I'm not no, sure. No, God, no, way higher. But yeah, it's just very good. It's a very well executed Bond film. As I think it's paced in a way that probably wouldn't sit well with a lot of people, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Anna Diarmas is amazing as a Bond girl. She's really fun. I hope that she gets more to do in future Bond films. Yeah, it's just a good time. Go check it out if you can. If you get the chance to go see it in theaters, absolutely go check it out in theaters. I can maybe check it in theaters. Maybe I should, Douglas. Uh, did you watch any other films? I did. I watched Red Notice, uh-huh. which is that uh, Netflix action comedy film starring Gal Gadot, Ryan Reynolds, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And uh, it is completely fine, right? Notice. Okay. It's not like, I get what the film is like trying to do, but like, it's just, it's allowing all of the actors to just like settle into their archetypes and like mm. what they, like Ryan Reynolds is very Ryan Reynolds. Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the most fucking bland yeah, Dwayne okay. The Rock Johnson. Gal Gadot is literally there just to fucking pose for the camera. She doesn't really even get that interesting a character. It's just very bland. And it has also had one of the best, I guess, grossing film starts on in from like an original Netflix film. The Red Notice has like broken records. So that kind of pisses me off because this is <laughs> not a good this is not the thing that we should be fueling netflix and going yes more of this please because no it's it's not what we want <laughs> uh, it's not what i want at the very least yeah i guess the thing with netflix is because so many people have it, it yeah, you, if yeah you're netflix, it's so accessible you can yeah. hype people up about it by just putting stuff on the front page and saying like this is an exciting film lots of people are watching. And, and people just go like, they see Ryan Reynolds, they see Gal Gadot, they see Dwayne The Rock Johnson. They're like, yeah, yeah. sure, that'll, that'll probably be a fun time. And if you like seeing them do what they always fucking do, then sure, you'll probably love Red Notice. Like, it's just, yeah, it's nothing new. We need fucking, I feel like we're having a midlife crisis, but with celebrities, you mm. know? Like, we need 
new celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> we toss them all out and start over. Yeah, yeah. Fuck it. Just, yeah. Wipe them out. It's good. I then watched, because you can catalogue this on Letterboxd, it's a, a short film uh, from Taylor Swift's new album, Red. Oh, yeah. Uh, Taylor's version. All Too Well, the 10-minute short film that was uh, published on YouTube. I'm really starting to get behind Taylor Swift as like a creative. I definitely think I dismissed her as a country pop artist. Mm. And I think that I didn't see any level of creative work in a lot of her pieces. Like it just just seemed very kind of bland and nothing. But Mm. when you actually learn that like she was being pretty creatively strangled by her label in terms of, like, how she could produce and release her music. Like, and then you listen to what is considered Taylor's version of these pieces. It's fucking night and day. Like, the lyricism, the intellect that is going on behind, like, the whole album. Like, not even just All Too Well, but, like, every single piece in Red is, like, insanely ingenuitive and creative and thought-provoking and... It's just such an incredibly well put together album. Hmm. Um, even from I'm not really that much of a country listener. Like I don't really listen to that much country music. But man, oh man, do I fuck with this? And she directed this short film as well, which is even more baffling to me because oh my god, what other fucking strings does she have to her bow? That's insane. Like this mm. is a very competently directed short film, and a very tangible film as well. Like a very the interaction between Sadie Sink and Dylan O'Brien is palpable. It is gorgeous. So, yeah, I'm probably batting on into the wind. Anyone who's in remotely interested in it has already watched it. You know what it is. It's two fucking incredibly grounded and talented actors who are just sitting right in the pocket of these given circumstances that are just so relatable and tangible and human. Yeah, they're just so well aware of their characterization. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Ah, and I can't log it on Letterboxd, but I also have been smashing out Arcane, which is the League of Legends um, oh, yeah. animated could, series that's that come out on Netflix. It's fucking really good. Yeah, yeah. I know fuck all about League of Legends lore. I play the game, but like, I don't know, like, I don't play it all the goddamn time and I don't know a lot about the lore or anything. But fuck me dead if it's not animated. Like, it feels like Riot just funneled a fuck ton of money over to their art direction team and just went, go fucking bonkers. And let me tell you, they fucking did. If there's one thing I've always loved about Riot Games, games, is their art direction is so fucking confident and clear. It is so distinct and appealing and individual in across like all platforms of its media from Valorant to League of Legends to fucking Teamfight Tactics to like they're just so well aware of what it is they're making and the vision that they want to present and Arcane is exactly the same it does not fucking falter for a goddamn second and the story is like genuinely gorgeous as well like there's there's a lot of pieces happening that are really interesting to watch grow and how the story kind of paces and progresses so yeah it's only at time of recording only act one and act two have been released it'll be end of this week is when act three will be released which is every act has three episodes Mm. and that'll be it so i'll probably give my final wrap up on the next episode of arcane on the next episode of the 250 sorry (laughs) but yeah there's supposed to be a comma there on the next episode comma of Arcane. Of Arcane. The initial reaction is very starry-eyed. It's, uh, yeah, it's an insanely... I haven't seen Western animated stuff like this, uh, like this confident and this good since Avatar. Like, oh, okay. it's fucking monumental. Yeah. Hell yeah. So, um, Jonathan, yeah. have you watched anything? I haven't watched anything. I started watching just before we started. Prisoners of the Ghostland, the new Nicolas Cage film where he's like oh, a samurai yeah. biker guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Looks good so far. I will check in when it is complete. Yep. When when I finished it, but it, it looks it looks f- at the very least fun so far. So that's kind of yep. what I'm aiming for. Mm. But yeah, no. Oh, 
Oh, um, I'm also halfway through. I'm, I fucking, I hate watching like halfway through a movie and then I have to like drop it because I'm fucking, I'm busy bee. Mm. Halfway through The Harder They Fall, which is another Netflix film that uh, released. It's like a all African-American cast led and produced Western. Oh, interesting. super fucking fun. Like it's, That is very fun. It is a lot of fun. And the cast is, yeah, uh, insanely talented. So um, I'll watch the rest of that and also get my thoughts on that on the next episode of the 250. Mm, well, for the time being, we got nothing left to say, Douglas. We better skedaddle. Uh, uh, uh. I couldn't find the window where I was recording and I had the biggest panic attack for like a microsecond that <laughs> I just completely lost all of the stuff. It is honestly a wonder that we haven't fucked up recording oh, an episode yet. Uh, touch wood, man. Like, it has been nearly two years of doing this shit and Holy we haven't lost a shit. single recording. How... That's incredible. And we haven't missed a single week. How insane We've is that? We've gotten very close, but we there's haven't missed a, a single of, week. There's been a couple of down-to-the-wire moments. But there's been a couple of Monday records for Tuesday episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but we have... We have uh, yeah. fucking, uh, anyway, who gives a fuck about this? This isn't interesting. Yeah, We're exactly. Let's get the hell out of here. Let's get... Well, I like to get... Let's go school. I think I almost had that. And then like I school? Like, like school. <laughs> <laughs> Yours is very my- good. Um, <laughs> zoinks. Zoinks. <laughs>